Hello. Hey, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Uh, yeah, I'm actually doing really well. I got up early this morning to work on some of our podcast stuff and prep for this episode. And then I went to a meeting at church and that was just awesome. We had a little round table trying to like solve some issues. The pastor just kind of brought this small group together and said, Hey, I want to use our time together to just workshop some things. And it was super cool. Lots of synergy in the room, lots of excitement building off of each other's ideas. And it was just super invigorating. So now I'm like coming back and I get to talk to you and hopefully we have some synergy and we get to talk about some things. And so it's cool. Man, what a good morning. It has been. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Awesome. Uh, It has been a good morning. I had an early coaching session and then got some stuff ready for the podcast. And here I am and uh, really excited because this is our last official chapter of the book. And then we have uh, next week, we're going to be going through the epilogue and the appendix. And then we will have completely finished uh, Miroslav Volf's book. So I am super excited to dig into this last chapter together. Oh, man. Yeah. And I feel like even though in the course of the book, the embrace chapter, I think was the pinnacle. This was like what everything was leading to is this idea of embrace. But then since mm-hmm. then, he has explored like, okay, how do how does this really work in the real world? And he ends with this chapter And it's like a gut punch. And it's almost like this, well, do you really believe it? When the rubber hits the road, are you really going to use this? I sure as heck hope so. End book. And you're just like, oh my gosh. Well, it feels to me like a one-two punch. On the one hand, there's the incredibly tough practicality of the fact that we live in a world that is ridden with violence. We can't Mm do these kind of theological reflections in isolation. We're not in an ivory tower. We're living in a world where there is deep pain and constant violence. And and what a true description of the moment we are in in history right now. You talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Oh, boy. And in the last couple of weeks, it's not like the world has gotten better. You know, (laughs) there is incredible violence brewing all over the world. And even a recent shooting up in Maine, uh, I have some friends and uh, some family members who live right by there. Mm. So that has happened and all the international stuff. I mean, it is just a violent, violent moment. Yeah, I feel like that's exactly the thing that he's wrestling with in this chapter. He's really asking the question, we as Christians believe that in the end, the Messiah will make all things right, and that truth and justice will ultimately reign. But how, in the meantime, do we live in a world where truth and justice do not yet reign? And he starts with building the tension here, because he goes back to the last chapter, revisits this idea of Jesus and his encounter with Pilate, and how Pilate realized Jesus wasn't trying to usurp Pilate's authority. 
Jesus was undermining the whole basis of his authority and undermining the whole basis of Roman authority and all of the political powers. In a sense, and I really love the way that Wolf puts this, Jesus was the ultimate criminal because he mm-hmm. didn't buy into the system and he undermined it from the inside out. And Wolf is wrestling with this and saying, okay, can we do the same? In this real world of injustice, do we really believe it? And he asks this really piercing question. He says, we believe in Jesus, but do we really believe in his ideas? Yeah. And, he, and then he launches the chapter from there. Yeah, it's so, so heavy. And so he jumps into three different secular proposals or proposals that he's going to take issue with potential solutions to to this problem. And at least the first two, I would say we've talked a lot about, and he's hit on earlier in the book. And so I would say we can kind of talk briefly about those and maybe just jump into the third one, because that's where I feel like he got some new information and was really thinking some new thoughts. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I completely agree, because I want to save a lot of time for his thoughts at the end. And so, yeah, he does. He he kind of talks about, you know, two of these solutions that he's already kind of hit on elsewhere in the book, this idea of universal reason. And we've already seen how universal reason doesn't work out because what is reasonable and by whose standard are we talking about reason? And reason ultimately devolves into argumentation about what should be and what shouldn't be. And then that just evolves into a war of words, which also involves a war of guns and violence in the end. And so reason doesn't really solve the problem. Yeah, I love how he, uh, the particular thinker he's wrestling with on this, writes his book in 1939. And so Wolf's kind of final word on this is, that sounded great. And then the Holocaust happened. Mm. Yeah. You know, and that's sort of his QED for that argument. And he goes on to analyze it a little bit more, but then he jumps into the second argument. The idea of a dialogue between religions as a way of overcoming violence. And this is where he has this great observation that I think has become more and more true, that religion is reasserting itself in public life, but that society has undermined the traditional bases of religion, things like community and family and organization that religion was previously tethered to. And so he talks about how religion was deregulated. And in short, what he means by that is that religion untethered from these various things, essentially our privatized view of religion means that religion is really easily manipulated and mobilized by forces as a means to their own ends. And this is where he has this brilliant, brilliant quote. Yes, I love this quote. And if you don't mind, I'd love to just read it. It's on page 278. And I just thought this was one of the shining moments in this chapter. He Mm -hmm. asks... Are the peoples fighting the battles of their power-hungry gods, or are the gods fighting the battles of their bellicose peoples? The two Mm. are not mutually exclusive, of course. My suspicion is, however, that the gods mostly get the short end of it. They end up doing more of the dirty work for the presumed earthly servants 
rather than the servants doing for them. And that was so profound. I mean, if we want to say we're going to fight in the name of our gods, really, most of the time what we're doing is we're using our gods as a cover for the battles we want to fight. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And he goes on to sort of throw that idea down to say, even if religions could talk to one another, that really wouldn't solve the problem because of this idea. Fact of the matter is the religion really isn't the problem. The people are the problem. Yeah, he's he basically says, look, all that that would solve, if we could get all the religions of the world to mutually understand one another, all that would do is eliminate purely religious wars. And I don't think we actually have any of those. Yeah. So it just, it really doesn't work. And I thought this was really fascinating. He says, look, all religious groups in some way or another advocate nonviolence already until they feel like they have no other option. And then they justify it in some way. And so- Mm -hmm. We're already there. We're already talking about nonviolence and then not doing it. So this is a, this is a failed solution. Yeah, no, this is exactly it. And then he comes to this major thinker that he's going to really use as his conversation partner for the duration of the chapter, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thinker, uh, Deleuze. Is that how you pronounce that? Yeah, I think the audiobook narrator said Jean Deleuze, but I'm not French enough to do it that way. So we'll just call him Deluge. Um, <laughs> With a Z. No, de- yes, Deluge. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I found Deluge's critique of Christianity to be disturbingly reasonable. Mm. Oh, that's a good word. That's a good way to say it. Yeah, it's scary. If this is allowed to stand, uh, this is a major, major critique. Yeah. So what I got out of it is that, generally speaking, Deleuze is putting against one another these two images of Jesus, Jesus the crucified Messiah, and Jesus the rider on the white horse in Revelation. And what he's saying is that when Revelation wins out as the end of the story, the new Jerusalem is nothing more or less or other than a totalitarian state that is enforced and brought into reality through violence that is ultimately completely controlling of its subjects in every area of their lives. Right. I mean, and I get it. I obviously disagree. But if we pause for just a moment and we look at the history of, say, you know, the USSR and the way that they brought a totalitarian state to bear on all of its enemies after committing such horrific, violent atrocities to subdue the whole region. You can read Revelation in that light and say this grand city of Jerusalem, this divine state is going to come and conquer the world and take over and everybody's going to bow down to the one true God in this holy city of Jerusalem. And it sounds very, very much like the historic USSR. Absolutely. Well, and and it doesn't just sound like it, right? I mean, Orthodox Christianity claims that all opponents of this new regime will be 
imprisoned permanently in a lake of fire, and all residents of this new regime will submit to the leadership of the king, heart, will, mind, and soul, public life and private life, everything. Yeah. When you think about that as an actual political reality, it does start to sound the same, doesn't it? Yes. And Deleuze argues that in order to get there, the crucified Messiah was nothing but a ruse or a mask. Mm -hmm. And that, I thought, was just such an awful critique. But, I mean, it makes sense. I'm going to read this real quick. He says, Mm. never mind that it looks, quote, slain. It only wears the mask of a victim to hide the hangman's face so as to free his death-dealing hand. And so he goes on to say in the final chapters of Revelation, he takes off the mask and exposes who he really is, which is this terrible warlord riding on a white horse that comes and slaughters all of his enemies. And that's all he was ever after in the first place. Yeah. I appreciate the fact that this critique is offered. I've never heard it before. Nor had I. And I love when a critique of the faith is brought into the open that actually has some teeth to it, because it means I'm either going to sharpen my understanding of God or sharpen my understanding of the Word, or I'm going to understand somehow the truth is going to be brought to light. And that is always an exciting process for me. Yes. And I think the place to start is by looking at what is Deleuze's solution to all of this? Because if he says this isn't the way it should be, like how should the story end instead? And he proposes kind of three steps. And some of these have been Mm -hmm. highlighted in other chapters. So I think we're going to be able to cover some ground here. But he basically says there's three things that are needed. One, no subject. In other words, if there's going to be this big cosmic unifying reality, and we don't want that, What we want is an undifferentiated whole. We have no subject, no I. So no subject, no setting of boundaries by making judgments. And then if we can accomplish those, then we have no terror. We have no violence. And that's Deleuze's solution. And Wolf goes on to argue, well, that doesn't make any sense. One, are always your own subject. You can't deny yourself. You can't, you know, like we said before, wherever you go, there you are. And then you have to set boundaries. Otherwise, I love this argument. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the butcher of Lyon and Mother Teresa. If there's no judgments, if there's no standard, right? So that just, that doesn't add up. And does it even follow that there would be no terror under those conditions? No, because everything would be permissible. Everybody would do whatever was right in their own eyes. And that ultimately leads to violence and destruction, just like everything else. So Deleuze can't even solve the problem, which I think is a great place to start. It really is. And then I appreciate the fact that Wolf says, well, then if his solution isn't a good one, Let's go back to the pieces of the biblical story that he is actually addressing and try to put them back together and see if we can get somewhere with the resources the Bible offers us. Yeah. And did you catch this? As he's making this transition, 
He says something to the effect of, and I meant to get the quote and I didn't, but he says something to the effect of, we don't even need to go to individual words or individual quotes from Jesus. What we want to look at is the story as a whole. Do you remember that? No, not particularly, but clearly that's what he goes on to do. And I just thought it was a very interesting hermeneutical approach. We are a people that have to have a sentence in the Bible that proves our point. I mean, imagine for a moment if you had a sermon that was preached and there wasn't a text, it was just about the story of the crucifixion in general. Almost like the way the Gospels tell it? Right. No, this is my point, is I think we may focus in too much, and I am a words person. I love words, I love individual phrases and sentences and paragraphs of the Bible. I think that probably the folks who interpret more the way Wolf does could learn from us how to be tethered by the actual words. But I think that there is something challenging here in letting the story as a whole speak rather than a particular passage speak. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I just want to clarify, of course, Wolf is not seeing a contradiction here. He's not saying no, that no, no. if we were to go to certain passages, all of this would fall apart. He's just saying there is a valuable hermeneutical process of just letting the story speak. And I feel like that's what Jesus did. I feel like that's what the Gospels do so frequently. It's And almost the entire Old Testament is just stories without further commentary. And yeah. that's so foreign to our 21st century, very analytical, give me the facts, please type of thinking. And it's a good corrective. Well, and especially with some of the stuff he said in a previous chapter, what we typically do with the story is often moralize. Let me talk about how this particular story means I should be a more moral person. And he's trying to let the story just speak for itself. But with all that in mind, I loved the fact that he's willing to take the crucified Messiah and the king on the white horse and ask, are there resources here that'll give the Christian follower of Jesus a response to violence? Yeah. And he dives specifically into the story of the crucifixion and what mm -hmm. are the implications for the fact that we have a crucified Messiah? And I think it's fascinating. I mean, it's, especially if you look at the first century and you look at the disciples themselves, they were not expecting to follow a crucified Messiah. This was baffling to them. They were following what they thought was going to be this conquering hero. And ultimately, that's what Jesus becomes, but he does it through crucifixion. And so we have to wrestle with why. What is the significance of the fact that we follow a crucified Messiah? And, and Wolf gives four implications for this. He says, first, it breaks the cycle of violence by being a nonviolent response to a violent act. And then he said the second is that the cross lays bare the mechanism for scapegoating. In other words, what every power monger knows but wants to keep hidden is the fact that they're seeking a scapegoat for the atrocities and for the things that are happening. And when they look at Jesus undermining the very foundation of their authority, 
he's going to become the scapegoat and he's going to be made the example of by that authority. And I I loved here the fact that he he Wolf points out this simple fact that I don't think I think often enough about, which is that Jesus may have been an innocent victim. He wasn't an arbitrary victim. Mm. Yes. Right? The idea that while Jesus didn't deserve to be crucified, of the thousands and thousands of people in the area, the fact of the matter was Jesus needed to be crucified because he represented a very real threat. Like you said earlier on in our conversation, not just to Pilate, but to the very structures of power as they were established. And Jesus, in being that sort of lightning rod for all of this, makes it very apparent you can't just blame. You can't just blame Jesus. It's not just Jesus's fault. He isn't just a scapegoat. There's more going on here. There is more going on. And that's Wolf's third point. He says, this is part of Jesus's struggle for God's truth and justice. This isn't just Jesus being a sacrifice and therefore identifying with the victims, though he is doing all of that. But it is more than that. This is not just being a victim or participating in nonviolence for nonviolence sake. This is Jesus's act of defiance against those power struggles. It is part of his struggle for God's truth and justice. Yeah, exactly. There are real sides and a real battle happening. And nonviolence is a way of fighting for one side and standing up against the other side. Right. Otherwise, it's not nonviolence. It's just victimization. (laughs) Yes, yes. Which I think is key, especially as we get into like wrestling with this in real life. Are we prepared to actually do this? And I think the first place our mind goes is, well, I don't want to just be a victim. That sounds awful. Can't I do something? And this isn't just victimhood. This is an act of defiance. And that's a very different thing. Yeah. And then his final of the four sort of captures a lot of what he has said, I feel like, to date, uh, which is that the cross is the divine embrace of the deceitful and the unjust. It is welcoming them in rather than excluding them. Right. But boy, when this gets practical in this moment, it gets hard. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, going back to his original arguments about the inadequacy of reason and discourse, because there's no constraints around it that would keep it from devolving into violence, he brings it back to the cross and he says this, which I thought was a great quote, only those who are willing to embrace the deceitful and unjust as Christ has done on the cross will be able to employ reason and discourse as instruments of peace rather than violence. Mm. He says the, the cross is the linchpin to all of this, and we have to join him in this self-giving act of embrace. Yeah, if we want in any way, shape, or form to end this cycle of violence. Yeah. But then he turns to this image of the rider 
on the white horse in the book of Revelation. And he asks, so is there a contradiction here? What do you think of all of that? This was so good. I think you said in a prior episode that uh, at that time, this was the best example of applied eschatology you had ever seen. And Mm -hmm. I think he magnifies that even more in this chapter because he makes the argument, look, God is being patient. God is trying to woo the people to come and join him. But if we're being honest and if we live in the real world, there are people that have so hardened their hearts against God and so devoted themselves to a life of violence and power that they will never repent. And it is those people that have martyred all of God's people that the white rider comes and destroys in the end. And this is the only way to truly bring peace and restoration. We have to end the violence by converting those who want to be changed and by ridding the world of all those who are mired in the choice that they have made. Yeah, he again, deeply disturbing quote about this, where he says that there is the tragic possibility that there might be human beings created in the image of God who, through the practice of evil, have immunized themselves from all attempts at redemption. The very thought that one of the freedoms God has given every human being is the freedom to immunize ourselves against the possibility of redemption. A look at the real world tells us that it is so. Yes. I am reminded of what the fear of the Lord is by reading that thought. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, so much of this book, I think he's really been emphasizing nonviolence, so self-donating love and all of this. And now all of a sudden he's finding himself having to make a case for violence in the right order of events, right? This is God's violence. And he says, look, those who advocate a purely nonviolent way of living, that smells, I love this. He just says, that smells a little bit too much like suburbia. Yes. And a suburbia that is honestly protected by violence, right? The police Mm -hmm. and the military make the peace of suburbia possible. And And so we live in our protected little enclaves and we say, oh, we should just be nonviolent, nonviolent, nonviolent. And it's disgraceful to even conceive of a loving God being violent. Well, that just doesn't match up when you meet the real world. Yeah, I actually thought of your job when he was talking about this. Mm. All the people who are writing about how no violence is ever necessary would feel a whole lot different if 911 couldn't answer. Yeah. It would be a different world. We've just we've gotten rid of the arbitrary random acts of violence in favor of the state authorized violence to subdue all other violence. Right. Well, and I think he goes on to say, look, if the god wasn't angry about some of these injustices, he wouldn't be a god worth following. Right? Mm-hmm. If if the Holocaust didn't upset God, then that's not a God I want to follow, right? If all of these other atrocities that we could name, you know, 
turn on the 10 o'clock news and take your pick or pick up one of my 911 calls, take your pick. If these types of awful victimizations and awful atrocities don't make God angry and don't want him to seek justice, then I don't know that I can follow that God. Absolutely. Well, and on the on the flip side of things, I don't know that there can be a new world if he's willing to accept those things in this one. Because otherwise, the new world will be just like the old one. Mm. And that's not a world I have any capacity to look forward to. I want a world without war and violence and rape and evil. Right. 100%. And if, if God is willing to be infinitely patient with those things. And this is the other thing he says is that is deeply insulting to the victims to say that God should be infinitely patient about those things. Deeply insulting to victims. Yeah. You know, pastorally, I've had to sit so many times with people who have been deeply wounded. And the only hope I can give them is that God is passionate about justice. And if that were not a real thing, for them, the gospel would have ceased to be good news. Yeah. And so I think it's at this point that we start to undermine all of what Wolf has said to this point. And we go, you're right. There has to be an act of justice. Let me grab my Mm -hmm. sword. Let me grab my shield. Mm -hmm. And I will follow the white rider into battle and we will slay all the wicked because this needs justice. And I love how simply he puts this on page 297. This is just brilliant. There is a duty prior to the duty to imitate God. And that is the duty of not wanting to be God, of letting God be God and humans be humans. This is God's battle to fight. And a close reading of Revelation will indicate the white writer does this on his own. He does not lead an army into battle. This is God's yeah. act of justice, not something he's calling our humanity to do. Humanity is being called to follow the crucified Jesus. Yes, exactly. A good friend of mine loves to point out the fact that God does, in fact, gather an army in the book of Revelation, and then they watch while he fights. Yeah. He's actually gathering an audience, not an army. Yes. And I actually had the exact same quote highlighted and was like poised to read it if you didn't actually read it, because the profound humility here that comes back to, you know, the the psalm that says, let me not think of things that are too great and mighty for me. Uh, I have calmed and quieted my soul. We as a culture are so constantly straining to be great, constantly straining to be unique, constantly straining to be the influential person. There is a huge strand of our faith that invites us to surrender all of that in an honest willingness to let God do his part and to recognize that I can't do his part because I'm not him. Yeah, 100%. I also loved this other piece of what he says, where he says, you know, there's this modern sensibility that God shouldn't be violent. (laughs) Yes. You know, and he, again, great quote, 
Is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole history of Judaism and Christianity? Yes, exactly. I mean, one, we have this modern standard that somehow sets God aside and says, no, 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 we've we've already determined you're a God of love and, you know, vengeance is not part of love. So obviously you can't do that. But then on the other side, we say, oh yeah, we promote nonviolence, we promote nonviolence. And then we come against some moment like, you know, again, World War II and look at Hitler and you go, okay, well, I guess some violence, you know, because like, seriously, mm-hmm. we are we just going to stand around and watch this? And why do we adopt that and and excuse our own selves, but we leave no room for God to do the same thing? We just think that that's unbecoming of God, but that it's perfectly fine for us to pick up a sword of justice and do these things. It just doesn't add up. Yeah, exactly. And so he lands in this place that I think leaves us with a very practical struggle that you mentioned early on in the conversation, which is it is the part of God's followers to be nonviolent, confident in the fact that vengeance is God's responsibility and not mine. Does that capture his conclusion adequately, do you think? I think it does. And he says, look, if you want to pick up the sword in the name of justice, sure, that's your choice. But don't come looking to the crucified Messiah to justify your cause. You're not going to find it. The crucified Messiah and those who claim to follow him chose a defiant act of nonviolence to testify to Jesus's real truth and justice. And in the end, he's going to separate those who are willing to come and participate in that and those who are not, and he will have the final act of vengeance. But, and I love how he says this, the end of the world is not violence but an endless divine embrace. Again, if we look at this idea of the open arms and this moment of waiting for the other to come, that is what Jesus did on the cross. He opened up his arms and he said, please come. And he is waiting for all those who will come to join in that embrace and all those who will not, he's going to choose to seal their decision and say, okay, if that's your decision, then that's your decision, but I will enact justice either way. Yeah, and so he leaves us in this space where the only theological option available to us is nonviolence, sort of, right? Like, I love the fact that he's willing to say about someone like Bonhoeffer, you know, Bonhoeffer was a, a passionate advocate of nonviolence in the middle of World War II who sets down his nonviolence because he believes that Hitler has to die for the well-being of the world. And so he participates in an attempt to assassinate Hitler against his own belief system. And it's not that he changed his beliefs. It's that he willingly went against his own beliefs because he didn't know what else to do. Hmm. He was caught in a contradiction. And essentially what I feel like Wolf is saying is there may be moments you have to be violent, but don't justify it by your Christianity. Yeah. And I almost wonder if he's, I feel like this is some of his own ambivalence coming through 
because he doesn't really resolve this tension because at the same time that he's kind of intimating that that might be okay, I don't know how, but it might, he's also saying, or like at the beginning of the chapter, we believe in Jesus, but we don't really believe in his ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think he's pushing us even beyond that, even beyond some decision point like Bonhoeffer had to face. I think he's saying, even then, can we bring ourselves to a point of trusting Jesus's ideas? Absolutely. Well, yeah, I think there's two things he's calling us to. To use more modern language that Wolf didn't have access to 20 or 30 years ago when he was writing this, I think he is saying, don't weaponize Christianity, ever. Mm, Right. There is nothing about the gospel that should ever be weaponized. And so if you are ever being divisive or attacking and you're using words from the Bible to do it, you're always in the wrong. And second, and this is the higher call that he almost offers reverently, almost like it's above his station to be too directive because he's just wrestling with this for himself. But it's this call to nonviolence as the authentic way of following the crucified Messiah, regardless of the outcome. Mm. It may not work, and that's okay. Right. Well, and that's where he talks about like the injustice of it and the scandal of the cross. Temporarily, it's not going to work, but it's pointing to a bigger reality. That's a hard thing. And and look, I also want to recognize the fact that we are wrestling with this from our suburban strongholds that are relatively mm-hmm. safe and secure. Like I can't imagine Christians in conflict zones where the threat of violence is not a threat anymore. They've had family members attacked, brutally murdered, violated. They've had their homes destroyed. They've had atrocity upon atrocity, and now they are running for their lives, living in shanty towns, and now they're being asked to wrestle with this idea of nonviolence. I can't bring myself to even comprehend that, and I don't want to take this conversation lightly and like I sit in an ivory tower and can dictate this. This is really hard. Well, and again, coming back to some of the resources that Wolf has offered us, he has been very intentional to distinguish between the truth that God knows that is perfect and the truth that I understand that is flawed. And so I think he holds this out loosely, knowing that it is his truth. And I also want to hold this loosely, knowing that it is my truth. I recognize there's a right answer here, but it doesn't mean that I think my answer is the right answer. And I I respect, and I think we res- want to be respectful of the fact that there may be another way people put these pieces together based on their circumstances, because we recognize that our circumstances certainly influence what we say and do and think. Yeah. But at the same time that that is true, and it absolutely is, I think at a question you introduced in a previous episode that I think is very, very valuable, I think we always should be asking of the text or of the stories of the Bible, 
does this mean what I don't want it to mean? Mm-hmm. I don't think we get to just let ourselves off the hook and say, whoa, that's really hard. But you know, somebody else might have a different opinion. And so, eh, who knows? No, I actually think we have to wrestle with this. And I think we really have to ask ourselves, is Wolf right? Does the text mean, does the story of the crucified Messiah mean what I don't want it to mean? Yeah. Do I want to believe that the way of Jesus that results in crucifixion is the pathway of the followers of Jesus? Yeah. That's a hard question. It is. So I would love to open this up to the audience and say, how are you wrestling with this? How has this book struck you? And A, does it match your experience or is it dissonant with your experience? And do you think this means what we don't want it to mean? I would love to just hear how people are responding to this, wrestling with this, trying to apply this. I need some help in doing that. Yeah, me too. I really look forward to hearing people's thoughts. And on the flip side, if you're wrestling with this, share this episode with somebody. Ask them what they think. The best possible use of one of the episodes of our podcast could be that you deeply disagree with us, share it with a friend, they disagree with us, and then you guys have a great conversation. (laughs) that would be awesome. Yes, it would. You know, it's funny because my son did that when he was in Montana. He took an episode, actually the episode where I asked the question, is God's glory his greatest primary motivation? I asked that question and I really wrestled with that with you. And Logan uh, was in a context with a lot of Calvinist-leaning Christians. And so he like pulled this up and said, Hey guys, I want you to hear what my dad and his friend are talking about. And I want to wrestle with this. And they all like, no, your dad's completely wrong. This is no God's glory is his his highest motivation. And they had a great conversation about how I was wrong. And I disagree with them, but that's okay. That's all right. Almost every time I read the Bible, I think about that conversation and how wrong you were. So... (laughs) Um, I see I read the Bible and think how right I was. Yeah. It's okay. Your truth as you understand it is limited. Um, <laughs> and fallible. Uh okay. I, mine is not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh well, since our thoughts are clearly not worth much, um let's skip that once again because we have delved Uh, so deeply into Wolf's. And if you don't mind, let's end with one more Witch Josh question. Oh, yeah, let's do it. All right. Charge! Uh, uh, Okay. Um, (laughs) This week's question is, which Josh was in a traveling singing group as a teenager? And this is me. This is... A huge part of my teenage story, the director of that singing group is now my father-in-law, but uh, there were seven or eight of us. We, for uh, two or three years, traveled throughout New England and sang at a variety of churches and things like that. But 
every time this comes up, the story that my wife will tell is that one of the places we were traveling to, we were doing a Saturday afternoon concert at a nursing home, and then we were singing at a church the next day. And we had been staying in this campground, and I did not sleep well the night before the concert at the nursing home. And so uh, my wife, who was in the singing group with us uh, when we were both teenagers, and she stood right next to me, and she looked over at me, and I was standing there on the end of the group. My mouth was still moving. But my eyes had completely shut, and I was clearly completely asleep. <laughs> and so uh, I can honestly claim to have sleep sung a concert uh, that I was in. <laughs> and that is something I am proud of. Oh, man. I feel like that's a skill you've like brought forward into our podcast. You just like, you know, I sleep through a few episodes now and then and just, you know, phone it in. Wait, what? What? I'm sorry. What'd you say? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, some of the bloopers that we uh, edit right out of there. <laughs> oh, man. Well, are we on to finish up Exclusion and Embrace next week? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to diving into his epilogue and some of his appendices and just, yeah, highlighting some of these things a little deeper that uh, we touched on throughout the series, but want to dive into a little bit further. All right. Well, I'll talk to you then. All right. Bye. All right. Bye.